For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Welcome, good morning, Bodhisattvas, in person here at Ebenezer Lutheran Church Sendo and in the cloud Sendo. Welcome. I'm here in Chicago in the Andersonville neighborhood. We've had a beautifully subtle Sendo in this space. So, <laughs> For the past two weeks, I've been participating in an intensive online practice event sponsored by San Francisco Zen Center. So I can be in Chicago and San Francisco at the same time. And then it's led by uh, San Francisco Zen Center Abbess, Fu Schraber against against Dharma sister and my Dharma auntie. Um, And we have committed to studying across the world together uh, the Diamond Sutra. Diamond Sutra. Practicing deeply, studying it, engaging it. This practice for me uh, has entailed reading the text, multiple translations, and Also, a way practice with such texts has to do with writing them, you can copy them, them aloud, which gives them a different kind of life. Perhaps meditating on the teaching, whatever that means. Hope it's okay to meditate on the Diamond Sutra of Boston, Zazen, and Oshikikasa. So, I ponder this teaching throughout the day, throughout the night, maybe for a month with my Dharma friends. And I thought I'd open that up a little bit with my Dharma friends. Ancient Dragon Diamonds. Ancient Dragon Diamonds. Um, so many of you, I don't want to bore you, but many of you may know the Diamond Sutra, may like it, may not like it, may feel like, you know, you've heard enough about it. So, um, but I'll just give a little intro. So this is part of this literature, maybe some people call this the second turning of the Dharma, but after Shakyamuni Buddha's sort of original foundational sutta teachings, Bali teachings, there arose, you know, maybe 400 years after the death of Buddha, um, some schools, let's say, that we trace our origins to Mahayana, such as Zen. And this school uh, developed these teachings called the Prajna Paramita teachings or literature. And it's kind of a, a vast literature. But it sort of riffs on one simple theme, the teaching of emptiness, that is the lack of some independent self. Which is sort of how an ordinary mind works. I know if you could think about it, but like if I said to you, oh, you know, how would you describe yourself? You know, you could look at one of your profiles on social media. So that's sort of how we have a self-nugget, right? 
Um, and this diamond sutra cuts, cuts those ideas and frees them. How it does that is mysterious. Part of your own practice. But I just wanted to say this sequence located in this larger group of wisdom teachings. And passionate, right, is wisdom or knowing, and karmita is supreme, the knowing that goes beyond, or like super duper knowing. It's a, a lifetime of practice. So, you know, most people in Zen are familiar with the Heart Sutra. So the Heart Sutra is like sort of a condensed version of these fast Prashnaparita teachings. And also the Diamond Sutra is actually about 16 or 17, 18 pages, depending on the font size, <laughs> page size. So it's pretty tiny, pretty small, not as not as condensed as the Princess Road, but it's pretty small. Some of these are pretty fast. But what's interesting is that they have vast commentaries. So just like almost every translation that is this is Red Pine's oh. translation. Some of the commentaries. Um, Edward Kanza's translation. Every word practically has a comment on it. But the famous Zen people who were commentators on this sutra, some of them gave up and burned up their commentaries. So this is kind of a hard teaching, um, but it's, it's a nice teaching. Beautiful teaching, the foundational teaching for us in Zen. I think I first encountered it at San Francisco Zen Center. Uh, and I remember being at service in the city center on Page Street. And all of a sudden, in the middle of service, we were handed a new chant book, Black Bound and a Flight. Humble looking, a little chant book. And then all of a sudden, everybody just opened at random pages and started chanting the Diamond Sutra <laughs> randomly, at, you know, completely just kind of random, chaotic chanting. And then, you know, at a signal, we stopped. And I was like, well, what is going on with this? You know, so this is a way that, that the sutra is brought forth. Um, and today we'll actually chant the Heart Sutra at service after this talk. So, um, just, you know, to give you back on my personal feelings is, you know, since that time, decades ago, I keep returning to this sutra. In particular, and, and another text in that, the Prashant Armita, um, in the 8,000 lines, um, they're both pretty inspiring, especially at this time during this tumultuous time of instability, even in our abode for our samba, there's a lot of instability in our world, there seems to be things everywhere. Um, and somehow I felt like I need, I was drawn to these. So it's Diamond Sutra again. And then this little intensive class popped up online. And I was like, oh, thank you for bringing us together to engage this. So I thought I would just share an image, uh, if that's possible, to David Ray. Um, and I'll just pass these around. Of the great goddess. The mother of all Buddhas, Prajna Paramita. Here, I think you can see her up here on the screen. 
hopefully bodhisattvas, those of you who have any visuals, can see her. This is a so this is sort of the embodiment or physical manifestation of these teachings. And uh, I'll just point out a couple of characteristics, because I think it's nice to have visuals, at least it's helpful to me, uh, that maybe go a little bit beyond words. And many of these uh, depictions of various deities or beings, wonderful beings, that have supported our practice, which we tentatively called Buddhism, um, they're like kind of visual poetry. So I can say a couple things about this particular Rajivarmita, which is from the 15th century uh, Tibetan depiction, a wall painting. And um, I'm hoping everyone in the room can hear me okay. Uh, so, if you take a peek at her, and maybe, I don't know, David, right, if you have, like, a, an arrow function, you, that might be helpful. But you might see in her right hand facing us, it looks left, but is a copy of the Prajnaparamita Sutras. It's actually kind of a small copy for such a giant uh, group of texts. But anyway, um, and her hand is an interesting position, this hand, is actually this hand, which is a gesture of protection, which I find interesting. A lot of times she's portrayed with a gesture that is a teaching gesture. Um, I would also like to draw your attention down to the platform she's sitting on. And beneath, you can see these two little white animals that are elephants. So, you know, we know that our, our great Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, sits on an elephant. No, so Manjabhadra sits on an elephant. Is that right? Yeah. So, so we have these elephant friends, these stable, steady friends. So she has her little elephants underneath supporting her or venerating her. You can't really see it, but kind of around her are a bunch of stupas. Um, and she has some interesting hand gestures. It's kind of, you know, can't quite do it, but it's like, yeah, these mudra. Eve, do you know what that means? Well, Eve has studied this type of dance in, in kind of related to India. But, but that yeah. hand position, I couldn't quite find. I think it might be... Um, either another uh, position of hand position of protection or warding off evil, or it also could be one of uh, unity of opposites. Oh, but anyway, is this one used for Lakshmi? Yeah, not sure. Mm -hmm. So anyway. Uh, I just thought I'd offer that image to warm us up a little bit to this teaching. So then we can maybe stop this screen share if you'd like to, David. Just really grateful that we have this techno suite and do this kind of hybrid situation that we have. Um, so, like most sutras, uh, when we begin, so what I'd like to do is maybe go through about four sections if we have time, and might stop at two. But um, what I'd like to do is read them, and then maybe do a little commentary. So I'm sorry if there'll be some long reading passages, but uh, it's one way to sort of get into these kinds of teachings. But most of these, uh, you know, we have this opening sutra verse that's kind of an homage to the teaching. But in this older literature, I'm just going to offer uh, the invocation or uh, in dedication, you could say homage, uh, verses in uh, Sanskrit and then in 
Igosh. So Om Namo Bhagavachai Arya Prajna Paramitai Homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy. So this is one of the few sutras I've seen that were introduced in this way that wasn't uh, really making homage to Shakyamuni Buddha. So here's chapter one. Thus have I heard, once Bhagavan was dwelling near Shravasti in Anathapindika Garden in Jetta Forest, together with the full assembly of 1250 bhikshus and a great many fearless bodhisattvas. One day before noon, the Bhagavan, that's Buddha, put on his patched robe, picked up his bowl, and entered the capital of Shravasti for offerings. After begging for food in the city, and eating his meal of rice, he returned from his daily round in the afternoon, put his robe and bowl away, washed his feet, and sat down on the appointed seat. After crossing his legs and adjusting his body, he turned his awareness to what was before him. A number of bhikshus then came up to where Bhagavan was sitting. After touching their heads to his feet, they walked around him to the right three times and sat down to one side. This is the second section. On this occasion, the Venerable Siddhiti was also present in the assembly, rising from the seat he uncovered one shoulder and touched his right knee to the ground, pressing his palms together and bowing to Buddha. He said, it is rare, Bhagavan, most rare indeed, Sugata. How the Tathagata, the Arhat, the fully enlightened one, blesses fearless bodhisattvas with the best of blessings. And it is rare, Bhagavan, how the Tathagata, the Arhat, the fully enlightened one, entrusts fearless bodhisattvas with the greatest of trust. Even so, Bhagavan, if a noble son or daughter or child should set forth on the bodhisattva path, how should they stand? How should they walk? How should they control their thoughts? The Buddha told the venerable Siddhichi, well said, Siddhichi, well said. So it is, Siddhichi, it is as you said. The Tathagata blesses fearless bodhisattvas with the best of blessings and entrusts fearless bodhisattvas with the greatest of trusts. You should therefore truly listen, Sibiri, and consider this well. I shall tell you how those who set forth on the Bodhisattva path should stand, should work, should walk, should work as well, uh, and should control their thoughts. The Venerable Sibuchi answered, May it be so, Bhagavan, and gave his full attention. So just to give you a little example of this retinue, perhaps uh, David Wright could share um, a block print that rests with the manuscript of the Prajna Paramita in the British Museum. Let's say uh, appropriated from... Uh, the Duong 
caves uh, by a famous explorer. Um, this comes from around the script. I think this, this so this is considered the first printed book, believe it or not, before Gutenberg. Um, but this beautiful image of, and I think everyone has, does everyone have a copy or can share a copy with someone? Um, maybe people could share. Um, in the dawn of social distancing, it's difficult for people in person to, to share. But I'll just point out a few um, aspects of this. So if you look closely, and, you know, I don't know how this works in terms of being able to enlarge the detail, but uh, this shows the central figure, right, is Buddha. You can notice Buddha is, must have put on uh, their robe after their meal because they're in a patched robe, uh, surrounded by a bunch of spiritual friends. And if you can see, there's a bunch of bald-headed uh, geezers. <laughs> those, those are, uh, of course, Buddha's old-school ascetic disciples. <laughs> and then there's some kind of fancy-looking uh, to the, when I'm looking at the picture, to the right, uh, kind of central at the edge. There are a couple like bodhisattvas that are kind of recognizable because they have nice headdresses and you know halos. You can see their hands are like in Anjali Mudra and Dasho. Uh, you know, just super like, please teach us that. Wow, wow. Okay, and then uh, you can see below them kind of are a couple people representing lay folk. Uh, there is Emperor Wu. There and maybe like Emperor's wife or whatever partner. And uh, there's some guardian. So those are lay people representing lay people. And then there's a guardian thing. Yeah, there's maybe another one on the other side. Um, so I just think about this. Imagine what energy it took to carve this, to carve each plate. You know, this in and of itself is uh, a teaching. There's also some brocade on what looks on the left side with flowers. This is usually like usually when Buddha appears, uh, a bunch of flowers rain down on the world. Um, there also are a couple like lion dogs at the bottom, food dogs. Um, Edward Kahn's at the end of his translation of the Diamond Support gives a lot of description of this um, print. But then at the very bottom left corner, in a patched row, is this elder kind of wizened individual, and that's Sabuti, a great uh, OG, original disciple of the Buddha, who is requesting this teaching on behalf of all of us, you know. I find it interesting, this isn't always, Sabuti doesn't appear everywhere, but in this uh, this sutra, particularly the Diamond Sutra, I think that I always contemplate, especially with em emptiness teachings, the fact that there's always uh, an undercurrent or a support of kindness and compassion. And indeed, Sabuti, who is known for being the expert in emptiness uh, in Shinyata. But also, it is said that Sabuti became enlightened when practicing metta meditation first, mm. when practicing meditation on loving kindness that is boundless. So I think this is a nice instruction for us to consider this about uh, Sabuti. Um, I don't know if there's, you know, there are many other things going on in this picture, um, but uh, maybe it's, it's better just to, to go on and think about uh, the beginning of this. You know, we have this description of how 
Buddha is moving about the still, getting up, begging, receiving alms, uh, carefully arranging his robes, carefully walking around the world. You know, I noticed this this morning. Everyone was carefully in the zendo, arranging our zendo situation and creating our space in this kind of Buddha-like way. Um, which is quite a wonderful way. So as we even are introduced in the Sutra to Buddha before he offers a teaching, is just living like we do. Eating, scrounging around for food, <laughs> but in a way that, when this is described, I could feel like this prajna, parnia, this wisdom, going about the day with incredible care for detail, but also not attached to any of it, not fooled by any of it, not being aggressive with the people offering him alms, carefully tending to his own body, putting his bowls away, putting his <laughs> clothes away. You know, do you ever think about how we put our clothes away? You know, do we just wow. throw them in a corner? Yeah. <laughs> or uh, how we touch, you know, our bowls. So, so this already is almost like standard issue Soto Zen <laughs> with attention to the details of everyday life. Um, I also would like to point out that, you know, I believe at the end of that first uh, section, there's this like, and then Buddha sat down after adjusting ropes and settling in and turned attention in front of them. This is a code for Shikantaza, or meditation, or Zazen. And uh, it is said that the Buddha, the concentration, the meditation, when he's turning, when they're turning their attention in front of them, is called the um, king of samadhis. Samadhi. So, you know, there are different concentration states, meditation, meditative states. If you read something like the Atamsaka Sutra, there's millions of different meditation, meditative states, you could say. So we're always going in and out of them. It's always interesting to go, oh, what would I call my meditative state right now? What would I call it? The bright jewel of awareness illuminating the universe? Or just like everyday Ebenezer. <laughs> um, but this king of samadhis, samadhis, by the way, is also a fascicle that appears in our great founder of Soto Zen Dogen's uh, collection of essays. And it's really great to, to read his commentary. You know, many people um, focus on Dogen's devotion to the Lotus Sutra but the emptiness teachings are everywhere in the Gandhakon, in this, in his festival on the King of Samadhis, Samadhi, and in uh, his festival on the Heart Sutra, Makahanya Paramita Paramitsu. Um, so here's a, some words by uh, our great emptiness ancestor that I, I read in an introduction by uh, Wadal and Abe that speaks about this king, maybe queen, of Samadhis, Samadhi. The Garjana says this in his commentary. It is called the king of Samadhis, Samadhi, because all other Samadhis, meditative states, of various kinds are included in it. It is like the myriad rivers and rivulets of the human world 
flowing its tributaries into the great ocean. is flowing into the great ocean. Or like the fact that all people are vassals of the king of the realm or the queen of the realm who is none other than Prussia Parvita. That's my addition. So this is our Shikantaza. This is our Zazen. This king of Samadhi. Samadhi. All inclusive. Bright, upright diamond awareness. That's my suggestion. So this is this is what flows to me from the diamond sutra. So we then have Sabuti asking this wonderful question. It's a it's a humble question in many ways. Rudy's question, which kind of sets in motion this Diamond Sutra, is Buddha, if a noble son or daughter or person should set forth on the Bodhisattva path, this path of <coughs> finding a way to be in the world that cares for all beings, including the earth and the universe, without hesitation. And without end, that's our Bodhisattva project, in case you didn't know it. Um, and you're all sort of, whether you like it, not maybe included in that Bodhisattva category just by being here together. So, how should they stand? How should they walk? How should they control their thoughts? Which is kind of interesting. Uh, so, you know, this is like how, what is the deportment internal controlling thoughts or relating to our mind stream uh, and external, how do we stand and navigate physically our world? And Buddha was clearly happy to hear this question, right? <laughs> to hear this question, what is the essential internal and external deportment of Bodhi beings? Dedicated to the Buddha way. And the Buddha said then to Sabuchi, Well said, Sabuchi, well said. So it is, Sabuchi. It is as you say. It's a target of blesses. So receiving this question with the target of blesses, fearless bodhisattvas, with the best of blessings, and entrust fearless bodhisattvas with the greatest of trusts. You should therefore truly listen to me and consider this well. I shall tell you how those who set forth on the Bodhisattva path should stand, how they should walk, how they should control their thoughts. And the Venerable Sabuti answered, May it be so, Bhagavan, and gave his full attention. So I just find this blessing and entrustment it's almost like giving Dharma transmission to just about everybody in the room. Here you go. And, and a blessing. Uh, because Sabuti could ask this question. And I think this question is one you can carry with you all day, every day, and night. Into your dream lives. Until your consciousness is a bright, shining diamond. <laughs> And so, uh, Buddha continues to display generosity and timely response to Sabuti. The Buddha said to Sabuti, Sabuti, those who would now set forth on the Bodhisattva path should thus give birth to this thought, popping out of the womb of Prashnapamita. However many beings there are in whatever realms of being might exist, whether they're born from an egg or born from a womb, born from the water or born from the air, whether they have form or no form, whether they have perception or no perception, and neither perception nor no perception. In whatever conceivable realm 
of being, one might conceive of beings. So however you think about beings, and however they come to be, in the realm of complete nirvana, I shall liberate them all. And though I thus liberate countless beings, not a single being is liberated. So, Gila goes on to explain this. What do you mean? You just liberated all beings. How can there not be a single being? Um, so Buddha says, and why not, Sabuti? Uh, a bodhisattva who creates the perception of a being cannot be called a bodhisattva. And why not? Sabuti, no one can be called a bodhisattva who creates a, a perception of a self or who creates the perception of a being, a life, or a soul. So I think I'll sort of stop here for a little bit and just kind of point out a couple things for our contemplation. So this is a pretty serious teaching on emptiness, which kind of says anybody who excludes anything and tries to grasp, hold on to, create, form a perception of, a perception that they're addicted to or attached to, maybe needs, needs some freshness, Armida, needs a kind of knowledge. Uh, about how to not be stuck in divided consciousness and consciousness that chops the world up. And if you want to see the result of such a divisive consciousness, just turn your computer on and go to social media or look at the news or walk out your door. Um, and think about that. But this, this is a helpful teaching that says we can go beyond that. And it begins with a vow, a vow to liberate all beings without exception. And that liberating activity is rooted in this deep, hard knowledge that the mother gives to us, or Prashant Arnita offers us that doesn't divide the world into the us and them and superior, inferior, or bigger, or smaller, or better, or worse. It doesn't use the world like a vending machine or transactionally. And uh, the next section, which I think I won't read today, but it extends to... Uh, So is it okay if I don't read the next section? Yeah. You know, this can go on and on. I really want us to talk about how we work with these teachings. Mm -hmm. But the next section talks also about uh, doing the same, not just with people, but with everything, all phenomena, everything we encounter and think of as an object, you know. A cup is not a cup, therefore it is cup. It's kind of the basic theme. Philosophical uh, underpinnings. So all dharmas are marked by emptiness. You hear this. This is what this means. Not clinging to anything. Offering words without being bound by words. Uh, going through the daily life, our daily rounds, liberated from attachment is a special wisdom. Uh, so a bird flies by the window, and we're not like, we're like, the bird flies by the window. But we're not like, oh, I wish that were an owl and not a cardinal. <laughs> or if we wish that thought, we see that thought is empty. So we have that thought. We're not holding on to it. This is a kind of knowing that heals, and it's nothing special in some ways. So when we go about our daily life, we can always connect to this, while at the same time paying attention to the phenomenal world. It's just that it's free. So if a bus comes, we do step out of the way. So you don't get hit. 
or if we walk in the door, because we want to use it, want to receive its offering, its gift of transportation. This is a mind of generosity, and it's supported by this vow, this arousal of bodhicitta, bodhicitta, this uh, desire, deep dedication. So let me just kind of wrap things up, and I'd like to hear from everyone your responses, but I want to make it a little more real. So I'm a psychologist, and in couples therapy, uh, one factor that drives people apart and creates conflict and distance is something that's been labeled negative sentiment override. That's when one partner begins to see everything the other partner does as negative. Do you ever have that experience with someone? They were like your best friend, but you really loved them. It could be your spouse, it could be a partner, it could be a friend, it could be a political figure. And then all of a sudden, everything they do is proof of how bad they are and how what's wrong with them. You know, they give you a gift and it's the wrong color. They don't really, they don't really think of you. Uh, they ask about your day, and that's evidence they're just trying to be manipulative. You know, really don't care about me. Uh, this is a strong other. Uh, so our psychological world here, our research world, <laughs> uh, brings us some information that tells us how these, these things work in our mind that is called adherence to a fixed self. Uh, and we also know that if we're not trying to fix, like it can be with a child, you know, you can feel like, oh, I love that child, and all of a sudden, you know, you're a little tired, you're having a bad day, and you're like, get away from me, <laughs> you know? Or, oh, you just turned into, like, a teenager, and I don't like you anymore. You used to be so sweet, you'd sit in my lap, and you were all good and cozy. Now, you're a monster. <laughs> you know, this is how our brains work. This is how our everyday conventional mind works. It's also the everyday conventional mind that can bear the dharma and polish our diamonds. So I want to respect that, but I think that this sutra really asks us, if you think about like everything on your social media profile, what would it be like if you gave all that up? Unless like, oh, that's not me. I'm a woman. Am I? Um, so this might, you know, are you ready? <laughs> are you ready for this? Are you ready to liberate everything? All your conceptions about yourself, about others, about insects, you know? Like sometimes we have insects or snakes, things we're afraid of. Then what happens? What crush it? Because it's separate and it's scary. So when our fear system gets activated, we need this emptiness teaching to remind us of the beauty of everything and the boundlessness. And that doesn't mean we say, oh, spider, bite my hand so I pick a huge, you know, my body dies. And, you know, but we see everything with this big mind. This is what big mind is. Big mind might just be a synonym for these emptiness teachings for Prajna Paramita, which includes all the Paramitas. If you know what those are, giving, the generosity, you know, ethical conduct, patience, energy. With a lot of energy that we come to practice here, we have to take care of the Senda and take care of the beautiful online people. Um, and this Prajna Paramita. So a little support for all of that. They all work together. Um, so this big line, this living non-dualistically, and truly respecting each appearance, moment by moment, each thing, each insect, dust, particle, star, knowing that our boundless fullness is always the way things really are working. 
and that's emptiness teaching, boundless teaching. It's another synonym for emptiness. So this diamond and this diamond cutter are one and always shining. And our practice of Zazen or Shikantaza on and off the cushion opens our eyes. Maybe like an advance, an, advance, an improvement on even the web telescope, illuminating space endlessly. And it's a diamond, it doesn't grass. So I'll just end today after, sorry about rambling on so far. Maybe I'll get a little bit excited about this teaching. Hope you are. But ours, and I want to relate it to our Zen world. You know, this teaching from India, maybe 200 CE-ish, maybe 150 BCE-ish, something like that, a long time ago, more recently, still long ago, our Zen founder, Bodhi Dharma, brought this teaching from India to China. Surely, he was thinking of this Prajnaparamita diamond cutter sutra in this dialogue. So remember Emperor Wu in the picture? Emperor Wu asked the great teacher, Bodhidharma, what is the first principle? What's the most important thing about holy teaching, about Buddhist teaching? And Bodhidharma said, vast emptiness, nothing holy, or let's say nothing separate, everything holy. That's how it's And then the emperor said, you know, so maybe I'll try another question if I'm going to get that one. Emperor Wu asked, who are you standing here in front of me? I don't know. Emperor didn't understand. And Bodhi slapped his feet and walked away. So I say, how do you understand Bodhisattvas? So I apologize for <laughs> for speaking so much about the first page and a half of the Dhamma Sutra, but thank you very much. And please bring forth your Dharma. I think we have a form for this, like people can raise their physical hands and raise the golden or whatever color hand you have on Zoom or riff on how this teaching reflects on you. I have a question about the picture. He has a question about the picture. Yes. So this, I mean, it's almost like Escher or something. Um, like it seemed like the floor becomes the ceiling. It's possible. I mean, this is probably occurring, although it's allegedly occurring uh, in Jenna's Grove, it is probably occurring in the vast, great space of the universe. So they're probably like flying in air someplace. And what's going on up here? Mm, I can't quite see it. Let me take a look at my picture here. I mean, I may not know. There's some like angel-like figures. Yeah. Yeah, there's some like, you know, just this is all like a little bit of a celebration. There's a party like every time Buddha speaks, you know. There's garlands and you know, beautiful scented flowers and all sorts of beings are just like super joyful. So that's what I think is going on. But you might have to ask us. Thank you. It is. Thank you so much, Ogetsu, for that. There's a thing in the very first section that somehow or other I feel like I missed the, the first through X number of times, and that's the that's the intimate devotion 
to the to the Buddha that, that the Bodhisattvas uh, venerate the Buddha's feet, mm-hmm. and that it's it's interesting too that it's after he has gone begging, so it's like he has occupied both the bottom and also the top of the. Nice. You know, he, he's been a beggar, and then he's also been back to his prince mode or or mm-hmm. spiritual teacher mode. For me, that really feels like a way into it. Feels like every time I prostrate or offer incense, that I that I get to I get to enter somehow into that. I don't know into the meditation hall with the with the Buddha, but that's just I, I don't know. The devotion just feels like a gateway to me, and I'm I, I'm happy to see that there's devotion at the beginning of this sutra that I'm I'm still just thinking maybe I can maybe I can get into this time as <laughs> as you're taking us through it. Maybe I think Brett finds it something like you know he chanted the Heart Sutra for thirty years and never thought much of it. Until they decide to write a book on it. So maybe that'll be your fate. But um, I like this contrast, right, between occupying all these different roles, whether it's a beggar or, you know, amazing spiritual teacher occupying all time and space, that there's a seamless flow. And the devotion, you know, Buddha washes his feet. Too. He's devoted as well to and blesses and entrusts. Um, but yes, this uh, this kind of appreciation. So in some ways, you could think that Buddha is everything in our perception when it's not when our perception isn't rigid and grasping. And then we're devoted to each moment, you know. There's this, and then there's this mudra, which is the wish fulfillment jewel. So, yeah, it's a beautiful part of this. I like the respect. Buddha's like, don't ask me that stupid question. <laughs> and also, there's a receptivity on the part of everyone in present, right? Like, yeah, then there's some might seem easier to some people if that daughter comes from that instead of your partner. Someone thought that. Someone got that. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the connection between Dharma. Because when you were when you were reciting it, I noticed that one of the things that the text is doing, at least to my perception, is once the sutra begins, it's a, a ritual. Mm-hmm. That like there's there's a there's a like every time the sutra read, it's like a pop-up ritual. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a very intentional choice of the of the sutra. Um, that to me like, like has an important task about how time operates with us and our ancestors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted to see. I, I don't. I wanted to well, that say more about that task. Um. Well, that, that Dylan, may I ask you to speak up so that wow. the, the Zoom our okay. Zoom friends can hear? Yeah. So, in fact, if you want to come over here, yeah, you can come over there okay. and speak. Um. So, so I'm not sure if you heard Dylan's question, but the question was about ritual and reading the sutra somewhat. Yeah. Why don't you, yeah, you can look at the screen. Hi, everybody. Um, so my question to Higetsu is, is about the connection between uh, Dharma and ritual, because when she was reciting the, the Dharma Sutra, it, I noticed that it was like a, a, a ritual immediately began. Um, that and uh, and that that's to me is an intentional choice of whoever the author or authors of the of the sutra is. Um, that I think 
perhaps does an important task of um, uh, working with time and about uh, connecting present practitioners with quote unquote past practitioners or quote unquote future practitioners. Um, and that, that uh, there's a, there's, there's sort of a um, immediate, like that, that it, it, it makes the practice always happen in, in, in all, at all times because that in the way that it's beginning uh, this ritual every time the text is performed. It's not just a, it's not just the teaching. It's there's there's a ritual that begins when the, the sutra begins. Um, but I guess that's just my immediate like kind of uh, instinct. But I haven't studied it as much. This, so I don't know if you have anything to offer. Yeah, I mean, I think you've said it well. Um, you know. This is our storytelling. This is our Buddha song lines, you know, that we have these teachings and we embody them in this time and place. Mm -hmm. And that does connect us in a deep way. And it also fast forwards it. And so, uh, but still it's rooted in our time and place. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what all those beings in that little uh, block print we're thinking and feeling, but we're doing this, we're enacting this, and this is, you know, Dogen's great thing, why do we practice if we're already aware and awake? So we make this alive in our way, and this is our um, way of being, so that's, thank you for that, Dylan. Yes. I want to just add to that. Yeah. Um, that, um, <laughs> Sorry. Um, Can I add to that? uh, That um, it also implies a groupness that that people are doing this in a group. They're not doing it individually. It's not a practice. So we're not doing it individually. But it also implies what? Groupness. Community. Yeah. And in the art, also in the especially the first piece, you know the implication that it's and and also um, Dylan's comments across the generations. I mean, there's an implication of the community of people in this. It's it's not focused in the way you were talking about it on just individual practice. Right. And. Yeah, I don't remember ever the Buddha just teaching by by themselves. It's usually with others. And our practices, even though monks will often do solitary practice, which I highly recommend, it's still good to come back. And we're never, that practice, if you think of it from emptiness, is not separate. But sometimes there is more focus in the teachings, it seems to me, on the internal practice. Yes, but only if that internal practice is not seen as separate from the rest of the world. Not just like my sasana, you know, my great samadhi, but ours. And I think this is another turning uh, of the wheel that is our, and you know, I'm not alone in saying this, but I strongly believe that this is our sort of way of broadening and opening Buddhist teaching is that sense of community mm-hmm. and broadening these inclusivity and openness and freeing ourselves from this divided consciousness. Yeah. So then we'll move community. This is how we put together the sendo, how we are aligned together. Um, yeah. And then we're joined to a community across space and time. But it's not just humans. It's trees and birds and cars and teacups. <laughs> so thank you. Would you, would you like to further comment? Yeah. Jerry, come on up to the seat in front of the computer, our laptop. 
And please uh, feel free to like stretch your leg to do what you need to do. Torch everyone who's sitting here so lovely cross-legged. I think there's something about um, paying attention and taking care of the things we have and how we put away our clothes and how we put away our dishes and treat everything we encounter. And it has a ritual aspect to it. And I think it is something that as a practice... I'm not going to say this quickly, but in some ways it's easier to practice that with others than it is to practice single. Jerry was talking about practicing this ritual with everything in our daily lives, whether it's clothes, putting things away. And I think it's easier to do it in a community than it is to do it solely by yourself. Yeah. That that it's it's because because you get the, the feedback of the community, you get the you get yeah. the reflection back. And I think that that's a that's a way to help us practice these rituals. That it's harder to do that if all your practice is only by yourself. Right. Yeah, it's harder to do maybe like, you know, you're by yourself, nobody's seen you just throwing your robe on the ground. <laughs> you know. Uh, at some point, even if you appear to be by yourself, your diamond shows the light that you never are. And it becomes easy. So this is a very hard practice. These emptiness teachings are hard teachings. Um but yes, we do do this together as a group because we help each other. But it's not to like get it all right. It's also to harmonize and learn how to live in peace. So, you know, if somebody in the Zendo says, oh, Hogatsu, please speak louder. And I'm like, how dare them say that? No, I'm speaking loud enough. No. But at least in, in practice with our Dharma friends, we know that we're all working on the same thing. So if we're a little bit snarky, uh, we know that we're still on the same program and support, supported into seeing that. So you learn, you know, uh, to become smoother and softer and more open. And we help each other with that. So thank you, Jerry, for that. Yeah. Um, but at some point, this will extend when nobody's nobody appears to be looking. You know, I guess we thought nobody was looking when we threw all the garbage into the ocean. And now most people can't see, you know, these big floating garbage islands. Um, but we feel it. And we get very tender. So our practice, you know, we create in the Zendo hopefully a safe space. So we can be tender and then bring that out into the world. So when somebody comes and meets us, that triggers this threat system or grasping or desire intoxication system, we can relax with it a little bit, hopefully, because we have, we, we realize, we start in song and realize we have the support of the whole universe with us at all times. Yes, practicing together. We do this on Zoom together too. And people in in this center in the physical space, you know, we're trying to like show our faces to the Zoom people and we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we navigate our small space and move back and forth during these Discussion. So I, I'm grateful to everyone for working with that. Where David Ray gets kicked off of his techno seat. <laughs> um.
Have a seat. Introduce yourself to people. <laughs> Hi, I'm Alex. Um, well, thanks for who gets it for the, the talk. And, and I think uh, what strikes me about this woodblock is it is uh, it's different than the scene that's painted um, at the beginning of the Prajna, mm-hmm. uh, the Vajra Chitika, uh, Prajna Tharamita Sutra, where uh, there's only, we're told there's only the community of 1,250 monks. Mm-hmm. But by the close of the sutra, uh, you know, the, uh, the whole um, assembly includes, you know, devas, men, uh, asuras, shravakas, um, you know, the assembly of, of, of sentient beings. And um, I just think it's, it's um, important that the, the transformative uh, part of the, of the sutra is, is about, um, I think, the, the bodhisattva. Um, path and not this um, um, narrower idea of um, of self liberation, but of um, of practice for the benefit of all uh, sentient beings, and and just asking Tigan at, at times about um, you know whether you know the difference between monastic practice or whether this was you know monastic or lay tradition and and he has has told me no this is not monastic or or lay buddhism it's um it's a bodhisattva um practice um and bringing in uh, what dylan was saying i think the 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 citra the object of veneration in the citra is not um, the Buddha, um, it's the, the sutra itself, and uh, it goes on to say that if you memorize or recite even one verse of four lines, that you know, the, the, the amount of merit that, that you receive is, um, is beyond imagination. And um, um, yeah, just that the, the transformative practice is how we. Um, um, help others by uh, obliterating this uh, distinction between ourselves and others and not creating, um, as uh, I think we've uh, read in the, uh, this, this division of, of self and others. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's a great summary of the rest of the talks. <laughs> And indeed, it's all inclusive teaching takes us beyond what we ordinarily think of as reality and seeks us right in the middle of our daily lives together. And just remembering, of course, there's all these flowers and ornaments and gandharvas and everything floating around us at all times, but you know, we don't have to worry about that so much.